All right, well, good morning. If I didn't get a chance to say good morning to you uh, as you were walking in or during the greeting time, then let me do so now. Good morning and welcome to Providence, this gathering of Providence Baptist Church and Troy. And then, Steve, if you watch or catch the podcast, um, brother, I love you. Uh, and I am so happy for you. And I'm proud of you. And uh, you've been a servant of this church. You'll continue to be a, a, a servant of this church. Um, you and Beth and Maya, you know, mean a lot uh, to my family personally and just to this church. So super excited for you. Um, for those of you who um, are a first-time guest, perhaps, we are in the midst of a series through four Old Testament books, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And we're coming to the end of Second Samuel. We've got this week, and then we have two more weeks left in Samuel before we roll into the book of Kings. And just kind of by way of preview of coming attractions, we'll be in Kings pretty much up through Easter. And then after Easter, through the end of the summer, we're going to take a little break, and we'll go through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. We did 1 Timothy last year. We'll go through 2 Timothy, and then we'll pick back up with Kings um, when we get into the fall, finish that up before Christmas. And so that's kind of where we're going over the rest of the year. But like I said, we're coming to the end of 2 Samuel, and when you come to the last four chapters, starting with chapter 21, which is where we'll be today, you come to what's often dubbed the appendices of the books of Samuel because these, are, these last four chapters are not in chronological order. They are uh, out of order. They, they record events that happened earlier in David's life. And I think the reason is because the author seems, I mean, he's been just kind of detailing David's downward spiral ever since his sin with Bathsheba. And it seems that the author doesn't want to leave us with kind of that being the last impression we have of David. And so he goes back to a couple of stories that happened earlier in David's life, <clears throat> excuse me, that he hasn't referenced to make some significant and specific theological points about the significance of David and his ministry. And namely, what he's trying to really hammer home is that David is a precursor to the Messiah. Because he's called the anointed one, and in Hebrew, that's Messiah. That's what the word is for anointed one. He's the precursor of the Messiah, and he's the precursor of a perfect king. David is an imperfect king, yet he's still the precursor of a coming perfect king, Jesus. And so David is the shadow of the substance that Christ would fulfill, the prophet, priest, and the king. And so that's... What this, these last four chapters, these appendices, are primarily about. But right at the beginning of this, when we come to chapter 21, the first chapter in these appendices, we get this odd and really tragic and heart-wrenching story that cries out to us of our need of the true King and the true Messiah to come into the world to make right all that's gone wrong. Because there is injustice all over the world. And it's, I mean, it's not hard in our day to look around and see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But friends, this is not a new phenomenon. It has been like this ever since the fall. And will be like this until Christ returns. And that's what we need. We need a true king. We need the true Messiah to come into the world and fix this. And this is showing us 
I mean, David, the man after God's own heart, the anointed king of God, he couldn't fix it. We need a true king. We need the true Messiah to come and bring perfect justice to the world, not just for Israel, but indeed the whole world. That's the, that's the main point of the text. That's what it's looking forward to, and that's what we'll build towards throughout this morning. But in order to see that, we first need to kind of get the story in our minds, and we'll highlight a couple of truths from the story, and then we can turn with clear focus to the main point of the story, this true and better king who's coming to bring justice to the world. So if you have a Bible, then we are going to be at 2 Samuel chapter 21. In the black hardback Bibles that are around you, this is on page 273. You will be helped if you will follow along. We're going to read the first 14 verses and make our way through them. And so again, you will be helped as we begin this section on the appendices. If you follow along, page 273 in the black hardback Bibles around you. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Read with me if you would, starting there in verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David, all right, just kind of a <clears throat> sometime in his reign, again, not chronological. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And so we'll stop right there for just a minute. What's going on is there's a famine, right? We read that. That's pretty easy to see. And the reason there's a famine is because of something Saul had done. King Saul, prior to David, he had slaughtered the Gibeonites, though Israel had sworn to spare them. So the backstory of this comes from, we have to go back to the book of Joshua, specifically Joshua chapter 9. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, don't really have much of a background in the church, the book of Joshua is the story of the conquest of the people of Israel as they came into the promised land, as they drove out and conquered various Canaanite peoples. And so the Gibeonites were one of these people, and they're seeing the Israelites just run over all these people. And so with good reason, they're a little bit terrified. And so they know, hey, we cannot take these guys in a battle. So here's what we'll do. We will lie to them, and we will try to trick and deceive them, and we'll tell them that we're not actually inhabitants of the land. We're just sojourners from a faraway country, and maybe they'll make a treaty with us, and we can stay in the land. And so that's what they did. And the Israelites fell for it. The Israelites did not seek God's counsel on this, and they were tricked, and they ended up making a covenant with the Gibeonites. Now, later on, they discovered what had happened, and they were not happy about this, right? But listen to what the leaders said in Joshua chapter 9, verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. And so that's the backstory. 
But then later on, as we just read here in chapter 21, Saul, as king, disregards the oath sworn by Israel, and he decides that purging the Gibeonites from the land is more important than maintaining the integrity of Israel. It's more important than honoring the covenant made by the people of God. And the reason this is a big deal is because violating an oath sworn in the name of God spits on the name of God. It says Yahweh is not dependable. That His name guarantees nothing. It's taking His name in vain. It makes Yahweh's name mud. And so when Saul carried out his premeditated massacre of the Gibeonites, he invited the wrath of God upon the people of Israel because he had profaned the name of the Lord. Friends, the name of the Lord is not something to trifle with. So even in our little texting shorthand of OMG, I would think carefully about striking that from your vocabulary. God's name is not something to trifle with. This is Yahweh. This is the great I am that we're talking about. And so again, there's a famine. The famine is there because of the injustice of what Saul did. And so King David decides to try and fix it. So verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. In other words, he's asking, what kind of reparations should I bring? And the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said to them, what do you say that I shall do for you? Like, tell me, we will do it. And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Not David's best moment here. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. We covered that weeks ago. The king took the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth, all right? It kind of makes you think, okay, so this, if this is a brother, half-brother of Jonathan, then what happened that caused Jonathan to name his son Mephibosheth after his half-brother? There must have been something noteworthy there. We don't know what that is, though. It just made me wonder that. Verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughters of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzaliah, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven sons perished together. This hanging is not like hanging like we think of today. This is impaled on a stick, way up in the air. That's what they're talking about. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. This is not an insignificant note. 
because the very next verse that we get into shows how significant this is because the very next verse is a living hell. A living hell. Look at it. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. And so what's happening here is if you read the Bible like a blog or like an article on the internet, you miss the pain and the agony and the heart-wrenchingness that is this verse. The horror that Rizpah here lives through is, like I said, it is a living hell. Because the barley harvest, which is when they were impaled and put up on the stick, that is in late March, early April. The autumn rains come in October and November. And so for seven or eight months, this mother watched over the decaying bodies of her two sons and these five other family members. Can you imagine that? Watching your child impaled on a stick, rotting for seven or eight months as you day and night fend off the birds from plucking at them and fend off the predators from trying to scavenge them because honoring the body and burying it properly is so important to the people of Israel. Do not desecrate the body. And so this mother's devotion to the bodies of her slain sons just magnifies the horror of the story. Watching that for seven or eight months. Finally, David hears about it and is moved to do something about it. So verse 11, when David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. Like when the Philistines killed them, they took the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, they tacked them up against a barn, cut, their, cut the heads off and just had them rotting away on the barn. People of Jabesh Gilead went and stole them by night and gave them a proper burial. But now uh, David is coming and going to honor them even more by getting their bones and taking them to their homeland, to the, his, Saul's father Kish, and putting them in the cave. You'll see that, verse 13. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. So by this point, they had pretty much decayed. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Okay, David honored the house of Saul and gave a proper burial for all his family members. And so this is, I told you, it was an odd, it's a weird, it's a tragic, heart-wrenching story. And I wanted you to kind of see the story in full before we started kind of pulling out some things from it. But I think there are a couple of things that almost jump off the page at us when we look at this. And we're going to fly through the first couple extremely quickly. Right? But the first one is this. If you want to take notes, this is in your sermon guide. The first one is this. God is a God of justice. All right? So number one in your notes. You can write, God is a God of justice. 
Right? We see this all over the pages of Scripture. Over 133 times it talks about this. I'll give you a few. Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Psalm 9, verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 82, 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 106, verse 3, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. That's just 10 of over 100 verses about the justice of the Lord spoken of and understood in this way. And here in verse 21, we see God is demanding justice for the Gibeonites. Not just the people of Israel, for the Gibeonites who were not his people. What Saul had done was an injustice and God was demanding justice be done for them by his people. And so that brings us to number two. Number two in your notes. God's people are to be a people of justice. Right? So if God is a God of justice... God's people are to be a people of justice. And again, the Bible is full of verses like this. I've already read a few, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. This is a command to us. And the sojourner, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. This is part of what it means to follow God. Now, it's not all that it means, right? But it is definitely part of what it means, and very much so. And so David here sought justice for the Gibeonites. The problem is that he, like God's people have so often done, misapplied justice. And that's number three this morning. God's people, and obviously the world, but we're talking about God's people today. God's people often misapply justice. That's what David did here. He misapplied justice. I mean, God told David what had caused the famine, but God did not tell David what to do about it. And so David's acceptance of whatever the Gibeonites said, that was all David. The solution promised by the Gibeonites, though, was excessively vindictive. It was never approved by God. It's not in there. And it was in direct violation of Scripture. Deuteronomy 24, 6 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. And so David misapplied justice. And as I've said, this is something, sadly, that's been common of God's people at times throughout history. From David here to some things in the early church, to the Crusades to even portions of the Reformation, and then chattel slavery in the, in the wake of the New World, Jim Crow, down to various issues today. 
And friends, when we misapply justice, we pervert God's name, not dissimilar from what Saul did originally here. And we harm evangelism. And someone's like, Joe, what do you mean we, we pervert God's name, not dissimilar from Saul? Because, Joe, as you just laid out, David misapplied God's justice, but still he got the famine to stop by letting them kill the seven sons. Did he? Look closely at the text. Where did the, when, when did the famine end? Verse 14. It did not end with the death of the sons. It ended eight months later when David showed compassion and honor towards Saul, Jonathan, and the seven who he had wrongly allowed to be executed. That's when it stopped. So it seems almost like the blood guilt of Saul's massacre of the Gibeonites was transferred to David for allowing these seven sons to be executed and was only assuaged when David turned from that. And what is turning? It's repenting. When David turned from that and showed these men honor, dignity, and gave them a proper burial. And so yes, when we misapply justice, we pervert the name of God. And in doing so, we harm evangelism. So, Thursday. What is Thursday? This coming Thursday in America. What is Thursday? Valentine's Day. So, men, you have no excuse. It has been announced ahead of time. I am helping you, brothers. All right? But February 14th is also the birthday of one of America's greatest heroes. Or at least it's the birthday that he came to uh, consider his birthday because born in 1818 into slavery, he did not know his exact birthday. And if you don't know who I'm talking about yet, it's Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. An amazing man. And if you've never read his autobiography, I would encourage you to do so. Short little book. I've read it twice. Great read. But he was an amazing man. Uh, he was saved at the age of 13. He learned to read. He began secretly teaching other slaves to read the New Testament so that they could understand the gospel, so that they could love and worship and enjoy Jesus and, love and lead others to do the same. He later escaped from slavery and he began helping others to do the same. And he delivered countless speeches. He advised President Abraham Lincoln. He championed women's rights. He joined the abolitionist movement. He became a statesman. And stridently, he became a pastor. And as a pastor, stridently condemned the diabolical system of chattel slavery. All right? So he called out the injustice of the day and how people who at least called themselves God's people, okay, Christians, how they grossly were misapplying justice, treating fellow image bearers as subhuman and property. And so we recognize that the false Christianity of the land was an obstacle to seeing and believing in the true and living God because he knew a Christianity that, quote, supported oppression and violence, misrepresented God's character, and would hinder people from seeing him for who he truly is. And so, friends, God's people have gotten it wrong in the past. And so praise God for those who have called the church with a prophetic voice to repent and turn away from misapplication. Because we are absolutely called to justice. 
And that's why we contend for, among other things, the unborn. It's a justice issue. And friends, it's not the only justice issue. And so let me speak real plainly to those who are maybe a little more politically progressive and those who are maybe a little more politically conservative. And hear me when I say there is no pun intended in what I'm about to say. There is no pun intended. It just so happens that our president's last name is Trump, okay? No pun intended here. But what we have to understand, both for those who may be a little more progressive and those who are a little more conservative, the reality we must all keep in mind is that if you are a Christian, your Christianity trumps political platforms. Okay, it does. Period. It does. All right? It trumps those. But my fear is that oftentimes we don't live that out. My fear is that those of you who are maybe a little more politically progressive is that you will rightly champion God's call to justice, but you might forget God's call to holiness and evangelism. And my fear for those of you who are maybe a little more politically conservative is that you might rightly champion evangelism and holiness, in theory at least, but you might forget God's call to justice beyond abortion. That is, God's people were also to contend for the sojourners, the refugees, the oppressed. And so let's not do that. Let's not do one and not the other. It's both and. And so let's contend properly. And based upon recent events coming out of Virginia and New York, let us especially contend for the unborn. And shockingly, the born as well, with these rumblings of infanticide. That is injustice of the highest order. And so let us be humble and contrite of heart, knowing that God's people have a checkered past on justice. But nevertheless, let us contend for it as salt and light in the world even as we await the day that the true king, the true Messiah, returns and finally and forever brings perfect justice to our world. A justice that only he can bring. David can't do it. We can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. That's the main point. We need Jesus to come back. We're longing for Jesus to come back and he's coming. And so that's number four this morning. God's perfect justice is coming for all people. God's perfect justice is coming for all people. But as soon as we start to talk about God and we start to talk about justice, that brings us straight into the teeth of two of the primary objections, and they are counterintuitive when you start to look at them, which we're going to do. But brings us right into the teeth of two of the primary objections to Christianity. So let's, let's chat about these for a minute. And here's what the two objections are. Number one, somebody will say, I can't believe in a God who judges and sends people to hell, who has wrath against evil and injustice. And then someone will say, I can't believe in a God who would allow all the evil and injustice and suffering of the world. But do you see how these two things are, are, are self-defeating, self-refuting? We, we want justice on the one hand. We just don't want God to be just and have wrath. And we're all about justice over here, but we don't want God to be the one who deals out justice. 
Uh, think about it. Like culturally, I'm going to not even talk about the Bible for a minute. Just culturally, when you look around at the world, we love justice. It's in our Pledge of Allegiance. It's in like some of our favorite TV shows and movies. Right? It's why crime television and courtroom TV never grows out of style. Perry Mason, we go old school. Matlock, Murder, She Wrote. And then today, CSI, Blue Bloods, all the different things. Even Judge Judy. Right? We love justice. We love the idea that people you know, who break the wall, who do wrong, in the end, they're going to get what they deserve. So culturally, we love this. But when it comes to the idea of the justice and the justness of God, whoa, not so much. You see our problem here? We're two-faced with this. We like it on the one hand, but not like it on the other. We love justice until someone starts to talk about God being just. Then all of a sudden, we don't like it anymore. But the reality is, God is just. And thus has what the Bible calls wrath against sin and evil. And the reason, this is super important, the reason he has wrath against sin and evil is because God is love. Because wrath is only possible when love exists. And so we've talked about this before, but just to kind of deal this out a little bit, if, if you don't love something, then it is impossible for something to make you wrathful. If you don't love it. And when you don't love, it's not possible for you to be angry about something because you don't love it. You don't care about it. So if you don't love this thing, when it gets tarnished, when it gets abused, when it gets violated, you don't care. You don't love it. It doesn't mean anything to you. So why would you get upset about that? But if you do love it, like God loves his world, then when something happens, you do care, right? And there's anger over the fact that something that you love has been damaged or violated. And so God does love, God does care, and so sin, evil, injustice will be judged. God will pour out justice because he is just. It will be, like justice will come. And not just on like the big things, but because God is holy and per absolutely perfect, just, justice and angry wrath will come on everything that's not perfect. And we can rail against this all we want. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And it's, I mean, really, it's not rocket science. I mean, somebody who's guilty over and over and over and over again, they get arrested, what happens? They go to jail. And nobody's like, I can't believe that happened, right? Everybody's like, well, yeah, of course that happened. He's violated over and over and over and over and over. And we've done that. And God is a God of justice. And so on the one hand, when we start talking about the justice of God, this should terrify us a little bit. But, folks, the big message of Christianity isn't that God has wrath. It's that he saves from his wrath. That he would save any of us. We do not deserve it. We have, I mean, we all deserve wrath. We all deserve hell. We all deserve judgment because we've all sinned. All of us. Every person on the planet. 
But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and took our judgment for us. He took the justice of God for us. And so for those who humble themselves at the cross, the wrath of God against our sins, past, present, and the ones we'll do someday in the future, was placed upon Christ. He's our substitute. He took our place. He paid our penalty. The justice of God against our sins fell on Him. This is why the gospel is called good news. Jesus rescues us from this. He saves anyone who will repent and believe. Anyone. But for those who will not repent, for those who live in continued rebellion against God, the eternal fires of hell will reveal God's wrath and justice. And so, for some of us in here, this should be terrifying. But it doesn't need to be if you'll repent and turn to Christ. And so, friend, won't you do that? If you do not know Jesus, will you turn to Him in faith and trust today? Would you do that? Trust Him. He desires to save you, adopt you into His family, and love you. So trust Him. If you want to know more about what that would look like at the end of the service, just turn to the person next to you. They will be glad to tell you about what that would mean, what that looks like. And there'll be church leaders on the way out the doors as well. You can grab one of them as well. But friends, while the wrath of God is terrifying on the one hand, it's also comforting on the other hand. Because what it means then is that there is an answer from God when the helpless are abused when evil dictators are followed, when orphans are trafficked and babies are dismembered and murdered and God is mocked. There's vengeance for these things. There's justice for these things. All these things will be set right. See, either your adversary will pay their debt in hell or they will repent and Jesus will have paid their debt for them. Which means some of our adversaries, if they repent and turn to Christ, we will see them in heaven. Because Jesus pays for their sins if they repent and turn, just as he paid for our sins. For those of you who trusted Christ. But for those who have wronged us terribly, murder, betrayal, whatever it may be in your life, I don't know, and they do not repent and believe, their sins, their penalties not suffered by Jesus. They've rejected their substitute. And they'll have to suffer the wrath of God on themselves. And so God tells us in Romans 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so vengeance, justice, is the Lord's. It is not yours. It's the Lord's. And so it's not up to you to seek vengeance for what's been done to you. God will take care of that. What we're called to do is offer offer both sides of our jaws, both cheeks, to forgive 70 times 7. 
to repay no evil with evil, as we just read. But rather, verse 20 here in Romans 12, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so we can let go of our anger, our bitterness, and our desire to punish because vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And we can trust Him to meet out what's right because He is just. And justice will come. And so for those of us in here who've been wronged severely, and I know there are some of us, and there was never a real apology there was never really anything done about it that's made it right. And now this person is out there just going on with their lives. No repercussions, no justice. What happens sometimes because of this is that we can't let go of what happened. And so we hold on to anger we hold on to bitterness. We rehearse it in our minds over and over and over. This should not have happened. This should not, this should not be this way. This was so wrong. How could this happen? And how can this person be out there living so happy with their lives when I am a train wreck right now? This is wrong. And he's just getting off scot-free and after what he's done. God's word from Romans 12, 19 comes at you again this morning to set you free from that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so you can lay down that burden of anger. You can lay down that practice of nursing your hurt with feelings of being wronged. Okay, you can lay it down. And when you lay it down, that does not mean that there was no wrong done against you. It does not mean that there's no justice. It does not mean that you will not be vindicated. It does not mean that they just got away with it. No, what it means is when you lay down the burden of vengeance, when you lay down the burden of vengeance, God will pick it up. And He will repay. You don't have to carry anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge, you can lay it down. And you don't need to carry those things anyhow. Jesus warned that an unforgiving heart will ultimately destroy you. And this is not a subtle way of getting re revenge. Oh, I'll heap coals on their head. This is a way of giving vengeance away to the one to whom it belongs. The Lord. And it's taking a deep breath. Maybe for the first time in months or years. And learning to let the love of God flow through you again. That you are free from being trapped in bitterness and anger. You can trust the Lord with that. He is just. He will bring justice. And that's a comforting thought. And so that's coming. God's justice, His perfect justice is coming the true king that we need, the true Messiah. He has come once. He lived. He died. He rose again for your sins. 
He ascended into heaven and he will come again. And when he does, he will bring perfect justice to the world. Truly, justice for all. And he will make right all that's gone wrong. And Revelation 21, 4 will begin coming true. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he will make death and pain and mourning and crying and injustice extinct. Those things will go extinct. That's coming. And so let's, let's let that fill us with hope now as we wait for it. And as we contend for it, knowing that it will never fully be realized till our true King and our true Messiah comes. But He's coming. And because of that, we can fight now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do not. We do not deserve... Mercy. We do not deserve grace. We deserve justice. And not just thinking about justice on others out there, but for a minute thinking about justice in our own lives. I deserve justice for my sins. I committed them. I did these. I've rebelled against you. I've committed treason against the high king of the universe. And if I can be killed for treason as a citizen of this country, how much more so can I be damned by the God of the universe for treason against you? But, oh God, I'm floored that you would make a way for me to be forgiven. That you would send your own son to take my place. To bear the justice I deserve. To bear the wrath I deserve in my place for my sins. And then not just wipe my slate clean, but give to me and clothe clothe me with his very righteousness. So that when you look at me, you see me. as blameless and holy because of the righteousness of Christ that's been put on me, been imputed to me. Father, I cannot get over this. And so we bless your name that you have made this way. Father, And we pray that you would open the eyes of anyone in this room who does not know you, that they would turn to you and receive this same forgiveness because you are just and justice will come. And it can either be paid for by Christ or it will be paid for by us. And Father, at the same time, we're thankful that justice will come. And that there will come an end to all these things that are going wrong and have gone wrong in the world. That there's an answer to all the evil. There's an answer and there is justice coming for the suffering of the world. For the innocent lives that are taken. And so, Father, fill us with our need for you and a burden to share the gospel with others 
and fill us with a hope that justice will come. And we can trust you and not try to take it up in our own arms. Vengeance is yours. In the name of Christ, amen.